Welcome to Saga Briefs, where we're examining the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And while we would traditionally move right from a saga summary into our judgment episode, well, we just, we couldn't do that this time, could we? <laughs> there's just too much left to say about Barth's saga. Somehow, somehow there's too much to say. Yeah. And how did that happen? When we started preparing for this uh, saga, I remember telling you that we should not spend more than two episodes on it. I remember. And that that might include the judgments. Yeah, but I, I never, I'm, I'm being honest here, I never believed that that would ever happen. <laughs> Why would we just spend like one or two episodes on this? Because I, and I think we, didn't believe that Barth's saga was going to sustain us for more than one to two episodes. Uh, yeah, well, how do you feel now, John? How do you feel? I, you know, I think it's best that I reserve my comments for another time. This isn't okay. the Judgments episode, so I shan't rate. Mm. Uh, Andy, somehow... Somehow we aren't at the Judgments episode yet. We aren't finished. For this episode, we uh, we agreed to keep the conversation going just a little bit longer on Barth Saga. But this time, to help us out, we have a guest to bear the load. Indeed we do. Indeed we do. Okay, hold on. I'm going to switch into my, um, my professional podcast interviewer voice. <clears throat> Our guest today received his master's in Viking and medieval Norse studies at the universities of Iceland and Oslo. He is currently a PhD candidate in the University of Connecticut's esteemed medieval studies program, where he researches Middle English and Old Norse romances. Please welcome our good friend, William Beale. Hey, Will. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This podcast has been a constant companion of mine through grad school, so oh, I'm great. thrilled to, to uh, finally make an appearance on it. Oh, we're, we're so glad to have you. Now, before we begin, Will... I just want to say that we initially intended to have you come on as a guest in our listener rune sack. But the more John and I talked about it, the more we realized that we need uh, we need a lot more than a rune sack uh, segment to get this conversation done to fully appreciate what you bring to the table. Um, which leads to my first no question: pressure, Will, <laughs> how did John rope you into coming onto this podcast to talk about Barth Saga? I mean, of all the sagas that we could be talking about, Will, you showed up here to talk about this weird little saga. Well, well, there was uh, an afternoon with some beers and a sword, uh, and uh, <laughs> somehow I ended up here after that. All the all the best plans. <laughs> I forgot well, about the sword. <laughs> yes, there was. Um, I did my master's thesis on Bard Saga uh, when I was in the program in Scandinavia. Um, so I have uh, worked with this and tried to make heads and tails, heads or tails of it uh, myself. Wow. Which one did he end up with, heads or tails? I would assume it came up right on the edge. Right. Exactly. Because <laughs> it's Bard Saga. <laughs> That's the nature I mean, of the monstrous to refuse. Given what happens to Ragnar, it could be heads and tails. That's right. <laughs> Ed's in tails. Get it? Uh, all right. Uh, well, we're going to jump into this. Uh, the first thing we have to deal with is our eponymous figure, our protagonist. Uh, Barth is called an as, uh, one of the gods, right? One of the Asir. But he's really more of an earth spirit. Um, so let's talk about land spirits. Uh, first of all, is Barth a god or isn't he? And then what did a late medieval Christian saga writer mean by calling Bard an as anyway? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Um, and it gets into a number of different problems. The first one that I think is the question of um, what was Scandinavia's pre-Christian religion like separate from its mm -hmm. mythology? You know, we have the Eddas um, and we have this 
these stories about the pre-Christian gods, but there's a big difference between the stories about them that were recorded well into the Christian period uh, versus the way that people actually lived and experienced religion before that. And you guys have talked about this a number of times on the, the podcast before. Um, so the, there's also the problem of the, uh, an, an os, uh, that, that what that means could shift over time perhaps as well. Mm-hmm. So um, when you're thinking about these early pre-Christian religions uh, and, and the practices, um, there probably would not have been a lot of organization. There would not have been a lot of consistency uh, from one region or tribe to the next. And it really would, might not have been very clear what the difference between an, an os or an alf an elf or the, the Aesir or the Vanir uh, or mm-hmm. even the Jotuns or, or, or things like that, um, it may not have been as clear or consistent. So there's the question of what it meant to those people. Um, right. It lacks the easy, the, the clear categorization that we like as modern scholars. Right, right. And so like if your tribe, um, you know, had a practice of giving gifts um, to the local elf in the rock, or something like that uh, in exchange for help. Um, well, that sounds like what Bard does. So uh, he might be similar to that, but would that have had an overlap with the early concept of house? When you're dealing with an early, uh, in the case of early religion before there's writing, we can't really know for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you've also got, what did that word mean to later Christians? Uh, mm-hmm. by the time that you get these things written down, by the time that the Eddas are written, for example, we know that already before Snorri was, ri- was writing uh, the prose Edda, that there were people in Rome uh, who were uh, mythographers that were looking back at the Roman past. And er- there's a similar trajectory there, where early on there's a lot of inconsistency, uh, but then later as the powers of the state and writing grow, uh, people back project more consistency onto those things. And then later you get the Christians trying to, to figure out how they should relate to this earlier pagan material that's so culturally important, but religiously alien. And so you get the mythographers writing in Rome who are trying to um, come up with a version of the Hellenic pantheon mm-hmm. and that's useful for them. They're doing this before Snorri was writing. So by the time that Snorri uh, sat down to pen the Edda, he already had a model. And it's right. very likely that his treatment of the Norse pantheon was highly influenced by uh, mm-hmm. the work of the Roman mythographers already. Um, he introduces the idea of the Asir as possibly being Trojans. Right, right. And there the he's bizarre working. bizarre introduction that he gives to the Edda. Absolutely. And there he's working with actually Geoffrey of Monmouth's um, History mm-hmm. of, of Britain, uh, which also says that um, the, uh, the the kings of Britain were originally a branch of the, of the uh, Trojans who fled right. uh, after the Greeks destroyed Troy. Um, and for a while, it was just very popular. You weren't anybody if you didn't uh, you have a Trojan ancestor somewhere <laughs> exactly. that you could like, set yourself up with. Um, so... You have uh, later on, you get this um, evolution of these senses, uh, the sense of this word from and, and how it can be useful to Christians. Uh, and that's where, you know, you're getting uh, art. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's even at a maybe even later stage there where, John, you talked a lot about how uh, hey, geography 
is such an important lens through which to read uh, this saga early on in the random collections of stories that are just there to kind of prove the power of, of Bard. Right, um, right. Yeah, so uh, at this stage that the saga is being written, um, it's pretty clear that the writers are thinking of the pagan gods as, um, you know, just a, they're thinking of them along the model of saints. Uh, mm-hmm. and there's a, so, you know, if God, the Christian God is supposed to be omnipotent and the pagan gods aren't, then in the, the Christian framework, the next rung down from the God, from the mm-hmm. Christian God would be, you know, saints. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where the pagan gods should fit in power and how they should act and everything. Um, you also get, you know, we've, we've seen these types of things, um, where paganism is considered to just be, it doesn't have like its own existence. It's just the negative image of Christianity. Right. Um, Something you see in Song of Roland, right? Yes. With the, or, or any of those romances, the depiction of the Saracens is always this mirror image, but a neg- very negative image of Christianity. Well, in right, the sagas, right. we see that example from uh, the description of the temple, right? Nirbija saga. Um, where we, where everything in the temple corresponds to something in a Christian church, but is a kind of uh, a an imaginative pagan kind of savage version, right? The aspergillum that that uh, is used to s- s- throw blood rather than holy water, right? Uh, for example, exactly. everything has that kind of Christian correspondence. And what's weird is that we actually have some records outside of Scandinavia, but not that far outside of Scandinavia, of a kind of like inverse of this happening too. In Lithuania, which was one of the last places in continental Europe to convert uh, to Christianity, over time, their paganism changed and adopted more and more formal aspects of uh, Latin Christendom, because that was the major power that they were in contact with, often violent contact. Um, But there was this process through which they actually shifted their practice in order to mimic um, you know, the, the Christian, the, the Christian model. So there is this, this, um, this process. And we even see that in modern, uh, day circumstances. I know that you guys were talking about, about D and D and, and I think that might come up in this conversation as well. Yes. Uh, you know, for those, we'll probably of, get to it. Yeah, exactly. And for those of us who, um, grew up at the un- during or at the end of the satanic panic, um, that was a, <laughs> situation in which there was these cults supposed to be running around that were the negative image of Christianity. And these are um, the tropes that were uh, deployed were almost identical to the tropes of witchcraft that were deployed in the early modern period um, when the printing press is spreading around Europe and things. uh, And there actually aren't any pagans in uh, contact anymore. And so there's even more removed. And so you have this even uh, more advanced stage of just imagining paganism as the mm-hmm. negative image of Christianity. So there's a long history of this type of depiction. And Bard is definitely an instance of that, though he's an unusual one too. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's one of the hardest things to get across to students, how messy the reconstruction of the Old Norse pagan religion is, because it's always coming to us through a lens that is several hundred years uh, uh, distant from the actual practice of that pagan religion. Right. Um, they, they want to believe that the poetic and prose Edda are representative of actual practice, but there's no practice even mentioned in, in those texts. These are just stories um, that are passed down and kind of messily or, or sloppily uh, combined. So, right. yeah. So this could turn into a whole thing about mythology and, yes. and religion, but let's, let's get back to Barth saga. If we, if we can, um, here's a very serious question for you. 
what is your go-to monster moment from Barth Saga, Will? Um, well, I have to say that I am fond of Ragnar, especially at the end when he starts sinking the island that they are on. Yeah. Um, I think that Ragnar, like, uh, you know, <laughs> is maybe the most powerful undead that exists in the Saga Corpus. Um, I don't think we ever get another figure that has that much supernatural force with all of the illusions. And it's unclear whether he's behind the various attacks against the, the group as they're traveling up towards him. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe that's just random unassociated land spirits. Maybe that's Ragnar sending his like uh, his legions out to confront them. Um, but the ability to sink an island like that at the end um, is uh, I don't think there's anything else that's like that, and so he does seem to be a very powerful undead. Yeah, it, it's um, it's I know the I'm not thinking about Ragnar at this moment, but the all the attacks and the things that they experience on the mm-hmm. way. We saw a similar kind of thing in uh, Flow Monosaga. Was it Flow Monosaga? Correct me if I'm wrong, but when you have this a person who converts yeah. and the land spirits and the gods start rebelling against them so that at those moments, bad things start to happen to right. the person who is about to convert. And we know from the very beginning of the text um, from the, the dream that Barth has when he's very young, that one day this is going to happen. Right. Right. And he rejects it. Yeah. It says something like he leaves Dolphrey's uh, kingdom after he has that dream. He's very angry about uh, guests pending um, conversion. And so I think what we have in, in, in the case of guests' long journey to Ragnar's mound is that the whole pagan religion itself, all of the gods, all the spirits and all that stuff are kind of pushing back against them to keep them from fulfilling this fate. Right. Um, and, and perhaps Ragnar fulfills that same kind of role in, in, uh, in a grander scale. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think um, the other side of that, though, I mean, of course, Ragnar is uh, has all this kind of freighted um, uh, meaning when it comes to religious conversion and so forth because of who he is and because of what he represents. But he's also appearing in a saga that includes giants of various types and sizes, trolls with stone boats. We talked about at one point, mm-hmm. um, various kind people who turn into trolls and go off and live in the mountains that he's also sort of part of a pantheon of monstrosity. Right. The kind yeah. of that this saga is very interested in for its own purposes, right? well, not necessarily just because of religious reasons, but because of this kind of pantheon of monstrosity. Exactly. And one of the things that's really interesting there is that in the Old Norse, um, a word that keeps coming up in the saga is Tvelisk, uh, uh, which means to turn oneself into a troll. And um, it actually, the I think the last time it appears is when Ragnar attacks, uh, Gester mm-hmm. reaches out for the sword and in the original it says something like uh he he trillisk uh you know and as he leaps to attack and um the modern scandinavian has uh trolldom means magic so there's maybe it's it has that sense in just like he enchanted himself or like released his magic mm-hmm. powers but it's definitely in a continuum of that um trolldom and monstrousness and you you know ask what my favorite monster moment in this is and frost giants are my all-time favorite norse monster but (laughs) the way that they're treated so uh humanely in this text it really i think pushes the boundary of whether i can even classify that as a monstrous moment at the start you know you get this whole these whole kingdoms of trolls and giants um at the beginning but they are treated so much just like any other of the you know jarldoms or whatever of um 
of early Scandinavia that they it doesn't really stand out as monstrous. I wonder if we can even push um, the idea of this kind of beyond the boundaries just of Scandinavian literature, because this is a feature that you also see in Celtic literature, in mm-hmm. continental literature. Um, I mean, is this is this text in conversation with those traditions, uh, or is this just is this strictly a Scandinavian story? Um, yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. And so that's one of the big issues around the sources of this text. Um, how much influence does Celtic material have over it? And uh, early on uh, in my dissertation writing, I was you know, trying to find what had been written about this, which, you know, not much recently. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, Gisli Sigurdsson uh, is a big scholar uh, on orality and the influence of oral traditions over written texts. And he does comment, he's got um, a passage in one of his early books where he, he just briefly passes over uh, Bard Saga and says that the amount of magic that is prevalent in the saga indicates its Celtic heritage, which um, I'm not completely convinced by that because it seems that the type of magic involved is is worth asking about. Um, and isn't, are, isn't that an, kind of an old scholarly trope? Like, it kind of, I'm thinking pretty old, like pre 1950. Here, you just say something in passing and then not actually offer it. Well, evidence. not not only that, without you know, know. forgetting, yeah, with I, with all due respect to Gisley, who is who is just a fantastic <laughs> scholar and a wonderful human being. Absolutely agree. But but there's this idea that almost everything can be traced back to these Celtic tropes, mm-hmm. right? And and so if you see magic, or if you see a, a journey to a, a strange underworld, or if you see fairies, or it all goes back to the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. so there's this like ur Celtic text that everything is like growing out of. Mm-hmm. I. I I understand it, but I don't. I, th- I think it's a little too convenient sometimes. Right, and when you have the prevalence of stone boats and people turning into trolls and these types of things that are pretty uh, firmly rooted in the Scandinavian tradition, yeah, yeah, even the types of illusions that Ragnar throws out at the end and the appearance of Odin, all of that really, to me, indicates um, a, a firmly Scandinavian origin for the, the magic in this saga. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And there is the, then the motif of giants too comes up, uh, in Celtic literature as well. You've got the Fomorians, but, um, you know, those are very different than the type of giants you get in Norse literature and in this text in particular. Um, the, you know, Baylor of the one eye, uh, does not behave the same way as like Emir or the, the frost giants really do. Um, I think uh, there's this enemy of the, between of the, the, the powers, you know, the, the Tua de Danan that come in of the Celtic gods. Um, I think the giants are very common across world literatures, mm-hmm. um, you know, living up here in New England. Uh, the Mohegan peoples had the Mashup uh, legend, the gi- legends of the giant Mashup uh, who hunted killer whales in the sea. Um, and is responsible for most of the stones, uh, big stones that are lying around the area, which is very much like Icelandic trolls and giants that are responsible for the stones there. Mm-hmm. So there are certain yeah. features that are very common. Um, but well, hold on, Will. We we do know that uh, Vikings traveled to the New World and landed very close to where you are. So oh, they probably shared those stories. <laughs> oh, and clearly. That's right. The, the Take a stroll through Boston, Will. There's, <laughs> yes. There's, we covered there's, that there's, already. There's plinths and everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
I think that it is especially important these days to recognize the ability of the uh, Mohican people to come up with their own giant legends. Oh, I see. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of like the, the Celtic tradition, so we could, on the one hand, we could say, yes, there are um, things in this saga that are firmly rooted in Scandinavian traditions. And yet it's so hard to read this saga and not see some very clear parallels um, mm -hmm. to some Celtic tradition. Um, we were talking during the episode uh, when Ragnar shows up in the hall and throws down that challenge. Well, I mean, how often do we see that in romance literature of the continent, whether we're talking about, so, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about uh, the Knight of the Cart, Lancelot. Well, you have a knight show up and challenge the king there. Right. Um, in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and that's where I'm really headed with this. In Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, you have the Green Knight arriving and offering a challenge and an insult to the king. So, you know, as we as we, as much as we might want to say uh, no Celtic influence, uh, I think you've done some work with the parallels with Sir Gawain the Green Knight. I wonder if you could talk to us about that particular story. Right, right. Um, so that's what my my MA thesis was uh, specifically focusing on was this uh, idea that there was this genetic relation between uh, Bard Saga and Sir Gawain the Green Knight. And I think my ultimate conclusion is that yes, there is. However, that's not what was important to the people who wrote it down. Um, mm -hmm. So there's some just timeline issues to resolve there, which is that Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is written probably, it's, it's post-Black Death. So maybe 1350 to 1400, uh, maybe a little bit before the Canterbury Tales. But Bard Saga is usually placed last quarter of the 13th century to the first quarter of the 14th century. So that gives us 1275 to 1325. Um, yeah. Bard Saga is actually earlier than uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight by that dating, for whatever dating of these manuscripts is worth, which is always a big question mark in any of these things. Um, so the, it's also, um, there's no beheading motif in Bard's saga like there is in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Ragnar does get his head cut off, but again, that's very much in the tradition of the revenant in Scandinavian literature, yeah, sure, where yeah. you cut the head off and, and uh, you know, put it by its butt. Uh, <laughs> so the um, other thing is that this motif actually does occur in other sources in Scandinavian texts that have not occasioned the comment that, oh, maybe this is related to Sargoyan the Green Knight or Celtic material. Um, so that was where my dissertation, actually, or not dissertation, my thesis um, took off was a footnote uh, that said, this is also found in these six sagas, which are all in the legendary saga uh, group. Um, and so I looked at those and I tried to analyze them and tried to figure out the relations between them. Um, and what I found is that this seems to be a thing that starts occurring after the Norwegian annexation of Iceland. So uh, 1262 to 1264, it took a couple of years for it um, to be voted in. Um, but the Norwegian crown takes over Iceland, ends the Commonwealth period, and uh, this has big effects on the literature. Um, that king, Halkin IV, Halkin, uh, Halkinson, was really into French literature. He yeah. was a personal king, a uh, personal friend of the King of England, and um, they exchanged, he got books from the King of England and gave the King of England a polar bear in return. Uh, so he had a pro, these books were the romances of Chrétien de Troyes, as well as probably the Lays of Marie de France. And 
those start being translated and those types of motifs start spreading through Scandinavian literature. These are the types of things that stimulate the spread of this um, motif of the what I call in my thesis, the courtly stranger appearing in the King's Hall and introducing this quest structure. Um, that is, I think, because medieval Scandinavians were trying to claim a closer political alliance with continental Europe. And France at the time um, was the most powerful uh, monarchy in continental Europe. And the Scandinavians really wanted to make themselves like the French. So while the French themselves, those romances of, of Chrétien and the Lays of Marie de France, they are taken from Celtic material, Breton, Welsh, Irish, but then they're made new for the French court. And the newness was part of it. The, the, the French were really um, into, we are a society that is uh, uh, started a new age. We are the inheritors of Rome and their equals, if not surpassing them. And so we are also claiming this connection to the Celtic past. However, we are taking their material and adapting it and making it new again. And the Scandinavians want to position themselves in that tradition. So Yes, there is a Celtic lineage there. However, that's not what made it popular in Scandinavia. It was the connection with French um, in some of the early linguistic treatises. Uh, I think it's a third grammatical treatise uh, written in Iceland. There's a, uh, in the introduction, it says that in order to be counted wise, a man needs to be able to speak Latin and French. Um, mm -hmm. So that is pretty firm evidence, in my opinion, that we should be looking at it in terms of this pan-European rise of a chivalric aristocracy um yeah, yeah rather right. than tracing it back to the celtic and and you no. see that throughout the legendary sagas as well that that same kind of mode what is what is mm -hmm. what is the purpose of uh the prose edda which establishes this great uh trojan origin for the people right. the kingdoms of of scandinavia what is the purpose of the saga of the volsungs and then mm -hmm. ragnar the saga of ragnar lothbrok its sequel and then all these things that connect the great families of all of scandinavia including iceland to these great great kingdoms of the past it's mm -hmm. taking that french model that you're just talking about but doing a germanic version of that exactly exactly yeah now this question is of uh, what both of you now have said right is that this is best discussed in a legendary saga context um so a question that came up a couple of times over the course of talking about barth saga is whether we should even be calling this a family saga right whether whether this belongs among the sagas of icelanders at all mm -hmm. a lot of its elements right everything we're talking about here the, and the continental cognates everything else would seem to point us in the direction of a legendary saga or a romance saga uh, and frankly, Andy and I both had misgivings. We had a whole conversation before we embarked on this saga as to whether we should be including it at all. Uh, we, fi we finally decided we were kind of hemmed in by the fact that it was included in the complete sagas of Icelanders set. Plus it's uh, exciting. But, there's there's you know, so much fun stuff. Um, what, do we, what do we think? Uh, Will, what's your take on the genre question? Is this a family saga or isn't it? Um, yes. Good. <laughs> I'm not going to pursue that any further because I don't want to find out four episodes in that we've been wasting our time. <laughs> right, right. Um, right. So uh, you guys have grappled with the, the genre question so many times across the podcast. It's one of those things that you just can't seem to get away with or get away from when you're mm -hmm. talking about Old Norse literature is just like, um, what categories do these things fall into? 
And as we know, the, the, um, the categories that we deal with now were created back in the 1830s by one man, uh, Carl Christian Lavin, uh, who was preparing editions and had to figure out what to, what groups to put these things into for his editions of the sagas that he was going to, to print. And we've been stuck with that. But he didn't, it wasn't a completely arbitrary decision because he was guided by uh, not just his own aesthetic sensibilities, but also texts that are clustered together in medieval manuscripts and post-medieval manuscripts. Um, so we do have texts like Vatanzala Saga and Yal Saga and Lachstyla Saga that tend to, to travel together and do not travel together with texts like Volsunga Saga and Wolf Saga Kraka and, you know, um, uh, Orver Odd Saga. Uh, so there does seem to be some type of sense that these were different things uh, for the medieval and early modern uh, writers and, and propagators of these texts. Um, but... Uh, you know, the, the, I think the question then becomes like, what do we mean by genre? And, um, is it just a list of features that we check off or is it a thing that a text does for a society? And that this text has certain, this society has certain texts that do certain things for it. Um, and there are a number of different categories of, of those, of those different types of texts that fulfill various functions. Um, right. Bard saga fulfills the function of a family saga. It goes back to Lanama book and tells a settlement um, and gives these uh, origins for place names. And it um, has the types of growing family feuds that you expect from a, a saga. And there are some legal cases and things that you would expect from that that like uh, give the expected form to the history of the land. But it also fulfills the uh, function of a legendary saga. And really the only um, problem of, for classifying it as a legendary saga historically is that legendary sagas are supposed to be set in a geographically vague uh, version of Scandinavia, mythic version of Scandinavia before the discovery of Iceland, whereas this one actually happens in Iceland largely, um, although largely outside of it too. So it does fulfill, other than that one pretty arbitrary quibble about the geographical location, it does fulfill the function of a um, legendary saga. And I think it really does teach us that you have to choose which mode of genre you're going to read it as. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can ask different questions of it and get different things out of it, depending on which mode you want uh, to use, which is something that we're not maybe as used to now. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that has more to do with the way that we um, distribute media, movies, uh, books, music has to be in certain stable categories for marketing purposes, whereas that's not really an issue for medieval Scandinavians. So they have a different and looser concept of genre. Mm -hmm. Well, so that brings up the question then, and this is really just, you know, a discussion point for the whole table. Uh, is, is genre just a false trail, right? If it's, if this is, uh, if we are just following Carl Robbins' uh, categorizations sort of blindly. And for people who um, uh, are listening, uh, if you if you have listened back over the last few episodes, Carl Robin was also the scholar uh, we talked about in our discussion of uh, Vikings in Vinland, uh, the, the scholar who decided that Dighton Rock showed evidence of Viking settlement in Massachusetts, despite never having actually been to Massachusetts or seen Dighton Rock. So the idea of kind of you know, throwing his arm up in the air and making a decision about a classification is something that that was kind of a feature of Robin's scholarship. 
Uh, but are we are we too interested in classifying sagas, in siloing them at the risk of considering the entire historical enterprise of saga writing as one massive and evolving project? Quite possibly, but also, as we were just saying, you can't really get away from it either because um, <laughs> there are these, these sets of, of collective features um, that seem yeah. to determine how that prompt certain interpretations of the text. Mm -hmm. And so when you're asking, well, what am I being asked to read and how am I being asked to read it? We need to know what other texts it's in conversation with. And that invariably leads towards genre, you know, because it's not just a desire to control and pigeonhole, but also a desire to recognize and to make knowable. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's if we keep that in mind, then I think the genre can be very um, enlightening. You know, and I think that it can be a really productive of uh, discussion as long as we're not trying to do that pigeonholing. Yeah, I think that's where the, the real danger is. And I, I think using genre classifications and we had this conversation, I think I feel like when we when we were doing the first episode on the the, the Thouter stuff, um, we had a conversation right. about what is a, a Thouter, what counts, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and we concluded that I think we concluded anyway, that it's important to have these distinctions, these classifications. Uh, as as Will just said, so you know what we're in conversation with. And for me, when we're looking at these sagas, if we're looking at like post-class, the traditional quote-unquote post-classical saga, well, one of the things that makes them post-classical is not just when they were written, because I think there's a lot of stuff that would, I think, count as a classical saga uh, if you're just looking at dates. Post-classical really has to do with some some playfulness with the genres. There is a blending of genre that happens in post-classical sagas. There is an, there's a, a, a slightly different interest by the authors of the post-classical sagas in, in terms of what they're doing. And that becomes useful. If we understand what those authors are playing with, what they're playing at, we can appreciate those sagas a little bit more. And this is where you and I, John, when we get to final ratings, often kind of butt heads because I'm, I feel like I'm much more alive to that, that possibility. Oh, you do, and, do you? <laughs> uh, see, I'm very interested in what the, what the uh, work appears to be in conversation with and what it appears to be trying to do and then judging it by how well it does that. Because frankly, not all authors are of equal skill. <laughs> and so True. An, an author may set out to be in conversation with one set of texts or one set of traditions and frankly fail. Uh, and if we don't acknowledge the possibility or the, the variety of levels of skill in the authors, then I don't think we're doing a real service to the entire tradition. If we just kind of treat them all as, well, they all tried, then we're, <laughs> kind, of, we're kind of leveling the playing okay. field in an unfair way. But okay, that that I think oversimplifies things just a little bit. I, I would argue that what you often try to do is say, this guy said he wants to fit in that box. And does he fit in the box or does he not fit in the box? Because I think you're judging them on sometimes. No, I think what's, what I'm doing is uh, I'm looking at what we're doing on the podcast, which is to uh -huh. discuss the sagas of Icelanders, the family sagas, uh -huh. and looking at the sagas based on their utility as exempla of that tradition. Of that tradition, yeah. Right? We, are, we have not said we're looking at sagas. Right? We've said we're looking at the sagas of Icelanders, and that's a specific mm -hmm. category of sagas. Um, so where this saga, for example, might do quite well, if I'm thinking about it as a legendary saga with some really interesting sort of traditions and some really interesting partaking of things like Christian hagiography and that kind of thing, um, as a family saga, as a saga of the Icelanders, it, I've got some questions. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Will. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, I, I kind of prefer calling it a legendary saga because mm -hmm. um, it 
the legendary sagas aren't supposed to be set in Iceland. And so the fact that this one right. is, I think, is cool and a, a reason for me to gravitate towards lumping it in with the legendary sagas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, uh, there's, you know, uh, it's hard to, to figure out how a whole group of people were feeling at a time or even suggesting a whole group of people were feeling similar ways at a similar time. That being said, I think the experience, for example, of this year shows us that lots of people can have similar feelings at similar times. Um, yes. And historically, the period after uh, Iceland's annexation by, uh, to Norway has been considered a, a time period where there was a, um, a a lot of social upheaval. And so it was certainly a time when many different types of people might feel that they were losing something uh, that they had previously appreciated. And I wonder, I don't have any type of evidence uh, to back this up, but I, I, I wonder if there might have been a feeling of loss of enchantment um, and an attempt to re-enchant uh, a bit of the land that felt like it was no longer enchanted the way it had been mm-hmm. before the mm-hmm. annexation. That's right. just the, fundamentally uh, a nostalgic impulse. Yes, yes. Yeah. But what a nice way of, of thinking about that. They're re-enchanting the land to make it magical again, to make it meaningful. I, I really like that. Okay, another question, shifting, shifting gears here, uh, but still thinking about saga writing. Um, a big question, something we introduced in the very first episode of our discussion of Bard Saga. Um, Will, how many sagas is this? <laughs> are, 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 are we buying into the, the, the whole idea that this saga is the work of multiple authors or that it is uh, originally two separate texts that are then kind of stitched together? Um, the first half is Barth saga. The second half is Gesterstauter. Uh, how, how do you read this one? Solve this mystery for us, Will. Wow, that is really, really uh, difficult, and um, it's. But look what we've tackled so far, and you're being recorded, Will. This is for posterity, so be honest. It is three sagas. No, um, uh, this is something that I've actually gone back and forth on, and again uh, to uh, continue waffling. Um, it depends <laughs> on what we mean by it being one or two sagas. So we saw this with uh, Kjallan Singa saga uh, that was appended by Jokul's Salter. Um, mm-hmm. So there is a case where we have uh, seemingly one text and then an unrelated uh, secondary or uh, less related secondary text. There's a genealogical link, but otherwise the content of Yoko Salter doesn't have a lot to do with what's happening in Kiana Singa Saga. Um, so the fact that it happens in Bard Saga too, this seems to be a, a known phenomenon in Icelandic literature at the time. And I, it used to be, I thought, well, the argument that this is two sagas is... Um, a argument from modern scholars that are trying to reconstruct a pure original, and that's a, a not a, a, a really productive way to think about these texts. Mm-hmm. It's circulated as a collective whole, and therefore it is a collective whole. But then again, in those translations I mentioned earlier of Cretian's romances, a weird thing ha- happens um, with the translation of the Comte de Graal, uh, which is the story of Percival. That becomes in Norse Parsifal's saga. And it is accompanied by a, another text called Wolverstauter, which means Gawain's story. Um, since we talked about whether Bard Saga is related to Sir Gawain the Green Knight, Gawain was known in Scandinavia. Um, but the strange thing there is that the original text that Cretin wrote did not break these texts up, and the Scandinavians chose to break them apart. But these two texts never occur independently. 
Volver's style right, right. does not circulate on its own. It only accompanies Parsifal Saga. So there seems to have been a desire um, for texts that were known uh, or written from the perspective of being split in two. So then that gets into the weird question of what does it mean to have the one text, but one that is intentionally divided into two parts. Right. I didn't smoke enough pot before this <laughs> to, to really deal with this problem. <laughs> right, right. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's one saga that's meant to be written in two parts, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> so I have a, a slightly easier question for you. Beowulf, mm. uh, one author or multiple authors? <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm just kidding there. Um, and... This is uh this gets gets us uh sort of on the same track, but uh, thinking about uh, once again this saga um, sort of in its in its second half as being in conversation with a different kind of tradition than the first half, or at least potentially so. Right. Uh, one of the reasons we want to talk to you is because you've done really extensive work thinking about the way Olaf Tryggvason, right, King mm-hmm. Olaf, mm-hmm. is depicted in the sagas. Um, yeah. We've been having a lot of fun with Olaf, and he's up there with. Gunnild, the mother of kings, and Harold Fairhair for the Norwegian with the most wildly varied depiction in the sagas. Yes. Uh, everything from Anchor Fluke, the hero of the bay, to um, this sort of proto, sort of this this un, un, uh, uh, unprecedented Christian king making Christianity the law of the north, to a man pouring uh, poisonous snakes down the throats of men who disagree with him. Right, he's all of these. And in this saga, we get a version of Olaf who may or may not have saintly powers of translocation and miracle working. Yeah. Uh, right. He shows up in Ragnar's tomb to save guests. I guess the best way to ask this question is, Will, who are King Olaf and why not? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Most Olaf John Sexton is- question ever. Yeah. <laughs> Olaf is super fun and uh, not least because he attracts so many bonkers stories around him. Right. For them. Um, and the, yeah, I, one of the strangest is this passage in Bard Saga where he appears in the final fight like you would expect a saint to, except saints are dead and Olaf yes. is still very much alive. And Bard, wonder, what, and what elsewhere, was he doing, what was he doing in the hall right before he was called to arrive in Greenland? <laughs> right. Was he making himself a sandwich and then all of a right. sudden got the signal, <laughs> the Olaf signal? <laughs> right. Like, I was at a party, guest. <laughs> <laughs> Bard shows up there too, and he's alive, but you know, he's supposed to be some pagan um land spirit god thing. Yeah. So, like the rules are right. He's kind of given up his mortal coil at this point. Right, exactly. Although it's it's interesting that he's able to uh, all of these people are like, why put Ragnar in Greenland of all places? Yeah. It's an odd, well, maybe it's not an odd choice because that is one of those last bastions or something. I don't know. Well, um, yeah, but- because the, the text doesn't say Greenland. It says Hetlerland, um, which there is, there's also this range of places that like the Norse were kind of mythological landscapes, uh, Geiseveller, uh, Hetlerland, um, that when the Norse eventually were able to sail across the Atlantic, they used some of those names for the places they found, but that didn't mean they stopped being used mythically either mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and so then like greenland is you know a real place but it also maybe is this mythical place once again runs in, even just the name runs into the same problem we had with whether there's a family saga or a legendary saga are we supposed to read this as an actual place that we can go and visit or are we supposed to read this as a fantasy land um and it's well the, the way that the way that the saga sets things up i would think it's supposed to be a real place if you look at the very beginning of 
of Bard Saga, when he arrives in Iceland, all of those places are actual places, right? Um, from from the uh, the little I forget what they call it, the church rock that they pray near, um, to the place where he's bathing, to the singing caves that I think. Will, did you say you you've been to the singing cave that he? I, I did. I, I was on when I was uh, taking classes in uh, Iceland. We took a expedition there, and uh, we. Um, were told uh, to sing a song. And so my friends and I sang the, uh, the song from the Hobbit, uh, far over the misty mountains cold. <laughs> and why would you happen to be in a misty mountain on a cold day? Yeah, sure. exactly. And it's Barth's cave where he, yeah. you know, he, he had, they, they held their councils and all that stuff um, yeah. at the very beginning. So my, my point is at the beginning of the saga, we're supposed to take that face value that these are actual geographical locations and Icelanders would perceive them as actual geographical locations. So why wouldn't we perceive Ragnar's uh, mound as being a real place? Right. I think that's a very, a very important question. Um, I, I, I wonder though, also like we know that Icelanders treat Iceland differently in literature than other places. Sometimes true. we've seen in previous uh, texts where like the entire rest of the world is just a place called abroad. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, look, you got me there. I, yeah, I, I don't um, have any argument for that. But then you've also got like other times where they have very detailed accounts of the geography. Mm. And it seems to be there are certain places like Norway where, depending on the author, they have extremely uh, accurate accounts. But then the further away you move from that, um, the more uh, weird it gets. And even when in the Vinland sagas, like they run into monopeds uh, there. So like yes. that's where they are treating it as a place you can actually go. And it's got monopeds. Um, so then there's the other question that like we're saying, oh, is this a real place or is this a fantasy land? But again, what happens if we accept that there are paranormal things that can just occur the further you get away from home? Um, mm. And in which case, maybe it's actually wrong of us to make that distinction in the first place. And Hedluland is just far enough off that, yes, it's a real place you can go. And if you go there, there's going to be an undead king. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we, we got kind of sidetracked on geography. Uh, yeah. It was well worth it. But who really will? Who are Olaf? <laughs> uh, right, right, right. Yes, yes. Um, so like I have a pet theory. Um, this entire conversation is just me expounding on pet theories. Uh, that's i mean that's what saga thing's all about i mean really this is this is we've been doing this for seven years and we're still more or less doing that yeah. well some fellow grad students have told me over drinks at conferences that they think it is at least plausible so that is all the proof that i'm okay i mean if an inebriated grad student buys it <laughs> um right so olaf um in his story, you know, and there's different versions of it also in the various, there's different versions of an actual historical Olaf saga. Um, and in those stories, you already have him fighting sorcerers and things. And that's just part of the, the conversion package, you know, that what we've been talking about when conversion comes, all the pagan forces rise up and Olaf's going to be the one to put them down. However, that makes him a magnet for weird things happening. And mm -hmm. as the Scandinavians develop their literary tradition, especially the Icelanders, um, they slot this into adventure stories. And I think that one thing that's really interesting is that rather than making it hagiography, they make it go the direction of romance. Um, so the, uh, for example, one of the translations of um, Marie de, the Lays of Marie de France, um, I can't remember which one it is off the top of my head, um, but is a, a, a story about Olaf or a, an Icelander who goes to his court and then goes off to the land of giants from his court, not unlike Gester goes off to this other frozen land. Um, so he is at the center of these things. And depending on the version, he spends a lot of time early on in his career um, abroad. And um, 
out of power. You know, uh, Halkin, uh, Jarl Halkin the Powerful has taken over Norway, so Olaf has to come back and reclaim his throne, and he has this successful military career uniting um, Norway, and then has a sudden death where he like disappears over the side of the uh, the uh, the ship, and um, there are all these stories that circulate about whether or not Olin might have, Olaf might actually survive, and see people say, mm-hmm. oh, I would went down to Constantinople, I met this monk who looked a lot like King Olaf. Um, <laughs> that sets him up very similar to King Arthur. We know from Snorri's introduction to the Edda that they were interested in, there was an awareness of the history of the Kings of Britain where this Arthur story begins and you get the once and future King motif. And so, you know, I don't know that people are intentionally saying Olaf is the Arthur of the North, but maybe um, he, they definitely found the stories of Arthur um, conv- a convenient framework to adapt to Olaf. And I think that the readership would have recognized, oh, this is like those stories of King Arthur, which makes Olaf all the more important of a figure, especially for mm-hmm. Icelanders. Yeah. I, I always think of, I, I like the Arthurian comparison. I tend to, I, I think I brought it up in one of the episodes that Olaf to me comes off far more as like the the Charlemagne in the Chansons de Guest, yeah. right? He is this central figure that unifies and spreads or defends Christianity mm-hmm. against this pagan threat. And right. he takes that central role where, yeah, absolutely weird things happen around him because of that. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's got that overbearing nature, like you were talking about in the last episode that I think is much more Charlemagne, whereas King Arthur is often very passive. And there's one of the yeah. Um, stumbling blocks to this pet theory is that Olaf is is almost never uh, portrayed as incapable. In fact, he's, he can be anchor flute. He can do anything. He can yes. show up in a tomb hundreds of miles away in the blink of an eye and a flash exactly. of light. You know, so he's very much. Um, whereas, like the Arthur stories, um, a lot of those are told were written by uh, people at baronial courts that wanted barons to seem like they were really important. And the king, uh, he's just this doddering old fool. Yeah, he's important, yeah. but like it's really us barons who hold the kingdom together. Um, And so Arthur is just very um, impotent. Uh, Olaf does not fit that pattern, really. Right. But common to both Charlemagne and Arthur is this idea of a series of stories in which an endless supply of great warriors, great knights, are kind of accrued to their court. Right. I mean, if we go through all the sagas, the number of people who end up being a part of Olaf's retinue at various times in the sagas and in the Thouter, uh, is almost endless. I mean, I, I don't think yes. we've come up with a complete list. Yes. Uh, and that's very much both Arthurian and something that we see with Charlemagne as well, that the, the idea that all the great men of the era end up at some point being a part of his group. Part yeah, of his very much so. Yeah. Now, we, we've talked about a lot of important things, but we need to talk about things that are a, a bit loftier. We need to raise the bar here just a little bit. Okay. Now, John had mentioned to me that you were the one who made the connection for him between Guest's adventure in Greenland raiding Rack or wherever it was, raiding Ragnar's Mound, and a traditional D&D quest, the Dungeons and Dragons quest. Now, Will, in your expert opinion, why do you think that Old Norse lit and Dungeons and Dragons go so well together? <laughs> now you're talking my language. You've combined my two great loves here. Yeah. Say, what, which which expertise are you actually calling on at this point? Both of them at the same. We're gonna we're gonna blend them like a basket. I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this will get me tenure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, I mean, uh, the, the 
straightforward answer would be Tolkien, because Tolkien uh, was a scholar of Old Norse. But I think an interesting uh, side in D&D history is that the one of the creators of, of Dungeons and Dragons, certainly the one who gets the most attention, Gary Gygax, he did not like Tolkien. He did mm-hmm. not really like those stories very much at all. He was much more into Conan the Barbarian. Um, so uh, I think right, it was Arneson who was more the, the Tolkien head, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And he brought a lot of those things in. So there is that path of, of um, influence through Arneson. But I think that it also points to, uh, interestingly, the limit of Gygax's influence that he wasn't like he, mm. he gets most of the attention. And, you know, I'm not trying to, to knock him down a peg, but to knock him down a peg, um, he uh, he was not the soul. It was a very uh, collaborative process creating the game. Um, but also it speaks to a broader course of, uh, of influence and transmission of these things about Vikings coming into uh, all aspects of medievalism, including Dungeons and Dragons, um, from the Victorian period on. Uh, so I think that, like, you know, I've been to a number of academic panels that do try to talk, tackle um, Norse influence in D&D, and it's actually really difficult to have a coherent statement about it because it's so pervasive. You know, mm-hmm. the, some of the yeah. basic tropes of the game about the existence of elves and dwarves, for example, and the base image of wizards taken from Gandalf, which is an Odinic figure. Um, Norse pervades uh, D&D so much that it's hard to separate the two. But at the same time, it becomes so denatured from anything originally Norse that at the same time, at a certain point, it becomes, well, is it really Norse anymore? We get back to the same question about like, is the influence Celtic or is it French? Um, yes, it genetically came from this stuff, but at a certain point, people writing fantasy stuff were just referencing other fantasy things that also had that background of Norse literature. Mm-hmm. And so then that's they're not really necessarily thinking about that directly anymore. Mm. Right. Yeah. I I do think that, that Bardstock also shows two very different styles of D&D play. If it were a D&D adventure, uh, uh-huh. the first half is where the DM has clearly statted up a whole region with a lot of interesting places. And there's just <laughs> a person in your party just goes bopping around from place to place encountering uh-huh. And there's not much cohesive, like overarching story to it, but it's just yeah. lots of fun adventures. And the <laughs> second one is where he has a very linear quest narrative with yes. like a big bad evil guy and the magic object you're supposed to go get. Oh, That's like, right. A ring of power type scenario. So like right. it does seem to represent two of the main different types of D&D play, weirdly. Yes. I'm, I'm just older enough uh, than you guys that my my thought when I was reading this uh, before you pointed out the D&D parallel was Zork, um, wow. which is the uh, the narrative video game uh, from the 80s, uh, where like it's, it's that you super linear. That I don't know Zork. I, I mean, we've never talked about Zork. Are you familiar? One of the first games that I ever played. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, th- but things like, uh, it's it's things like the 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 40 Iron Shoes um, and the, the the belt that he's given. These This is a very Zork thing. You're given these yeah. items and you must type in, right, pick up 40 Iron Shoes. And you know, at some point in the narrative going forward, they're going to be important because it is a very linear storyline. There's a right path to take yeah. through this quest. Uh, and it feels very much like that, where you're on rails. Uh, yeah. But then you pointed out the D&D parallel. And yeah, as long as you assume that they have free will and that their passage through this quest is actually deliberative and not just being railroaded, then yes, it absolutely works as a quest. 
I think that the whole backstory with like the land of giants and everything is just a very long-winded DM setting up a campaign and then they get <laughs> to Iceland and have free will and they kind of ramble around and don't have a story and the DM decides, you know what, I'm going back to the uh, very forced, uh, you <laughs> yes. don't have any choice, you're going right. to go off here and do these things. Yeah. Now, uh, so this is something that I actually get asked by students a fair amount and I know we, we may have, I mean, uh, somewhere between 33 and 100% of people on this podcast play D&D uh, or have. Um, and my students will ask this occasionally. Um, what kinds of literature, medieval especially, but not exclusively, uh, what kinds of literature do you point people to if they're looking for inspiration for designing something like a D&D campaign? Yeah, I really, really love this question. So just staying within sagas to start with, I think that like my preferred uh, literature would be things like um, Black Style of Saga, Vatan Style of Saga, Erebigia Saga, that you've got that regional focus where you've got a very, uh, a lot of detail around personas and places that are important. And then, you know, uh, the way that you read those texts, you can kind of make your own series of connections. There's various through lines and themes, but like what meaning you might find there is very much something that emerges based off your own response. And I think that that lends itself very well to um, player driven D&D play and is it would be a great model for how to stat up a region uh, to run a campaign in. Um, so those are the types of sagas that I would I would especially recommend. Um, there obviously Arthuriana uh, and the Lays of, of Marie de France um, are really great for just the types of like magic and um, the types of uh, kind of quest narrative and structure and that iterative, oh, before you cross the bridge, you need to get the sword. And in order to get the sword, you have to defeat the dragon. In order to defeat the dragon, you have to go to the mountain ad infinitum. So those are, the, but those are also the types of things that like D&D just has those things in its DNA already. Um, the, P, the text that D&D is referencing had those things in mind explicitly. Right. So when I'm thinking about this, what I, I wanted to try and come up with some less obvious um, uh, mm -hmm. suggestions. And the one I latched onto is Saints Lives. Um, I think, again, for people growing up in the shadow of the satanic panic, especially in America, they might not realize how like um, wild medieval saints lives are and like, <laughs> how hardcore and like, yeah. like and how very metal they are. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about the, the, the uh, life of St. Catherine, where you've got like this infernal machine that's supposed to be like uh, cutting her up into these pieces with all these uh, bladed wheels spinning around mm -hmm. and God sends down basically a flame strike, blows it up and kills 4,000 pagans, you know, <laughs> like they're very gory. Yes. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. Um, the other thing uh, that I would recommend, um, actually, that I get a lot of inspiration from that I thought might be unusual is that, and this might just be very idiosyncratic to me, and this might be very pretentious, but like when I'm reading cultural studies and literary theory, I can't help but thinking like this would be so cool to bring into a D&D game somehow because so much of it is a, a kind of world building, I think. Um, mm -hmm. I was just reading, uh, I had an occasion to be reading some uh, work on archives today. So I was re reading uh, Achille, um, 
Ndimbe's uh, work on archives earlier, and he was talking about them as these sacred places where we have modern day magic and rituals, um, you know, going into the library. And um, he was talking about even the way that like, you know, governments can use archives to oppress people. And I thought this would all be great tension to build a campaign around. Like you could easily mm. see statting up our enemies that have this magic, you know, and these forces at their, at their behest and that the players have to uh, engage with. So I think that there's a lot of, of philosophy and, um, and literary theory and things like that actually can have a lot of world building potential. It makes you see our world in a different way. And for me, it's a way to kind of re-enchant the world around mm -hmm. me, like we were talking about with Bard Saga, just through ideas. And there's a very intellectual side of D&D, kind of the Doctor Who what-if scenario right. tradition, um, where you're taking these big high concepts and writing an adventure to, to, uh, to deal with them. So I think that's also a place that, you know, if, if your students are of a literary inclination in the first place, or other people who listen to this podcast, I know that they're all extremely erudite and cultured. Um, Every single one of them. Yes. So I would actually say that that, that, that is a, a source of inspiration mm -hmm. for me as a DM. That's great. Yeah, though, I, I um, for me, the question is whether you're trying to create a campaign or whether you're trying to flesh out a world. Right. Yes. Um, right. If I if I want to flesh out a world, um, ref the sly. Uh, I mean, what what an idea for a campaign world. Yeah. Right? A, yeah. Right? The, a, a medieval world of Vikings where you've also got ships on wheels where you've got uh, fire suppression systems built into yep. walls, right? All of this kind of steampunk technology uh, that exists within the world of that saga. There's yeah. also um, Ingvar Saga Vidforla, Ingvar Saga the, the Far Traveled, um, or the Saga of Ingvar the Far Traveled, mm -hmm. which is maybe the most bonkers saga that I've ever read. And <laughs> it's similar to Bard's saga because it, the question is, is this a legendary saga or a king's saga? So it falls mm -hmm. outside the purview of the sagas of Icelanders. Um, but it's super short. It's about 20 pages, but it's got um, like ironclad ships with steam engines like these steampunk things that shoot fire it's got like um these uh, uh enchanted um bow like the, a priest that she casts spells on bows so they glow with holy fire and blow up dragons um <laughs> it's got people getting killed by wormlings like that's a term from DD, &D, and that's actually the norse word urmlinger that they use mm -hmm. uh, for a little and it's got um like uh, evil bird people clerics in it and stuff, and it's all 20 pages long. Uh, it's yeah. got a pickled giant's leg. Uh, so, <laughs> so <laughs> good. Oh yeah. my god! I would, I would, I always want to recommend people read Ingvar's Saga Vidforla. Yeah, that's that was mad. I'd, I'd forgotten yeah, it, that part. For me, outside of outside of medieval literature, I think I think of two texts that are kind of useful in interesting ways. Uh, one would be Spencer's Fairy Queen. If you're looking mm -hmm. to make mm -hmm crazy monsters weird scenarios yes. that have some kind of metaphorical purpose to them but also just weirdness yes. um fairy queen is a great place to go Absolutely. um if you can get through it um yeah, and then you if you forget that it's allegory like stop reading it as an allegory yeah just read it as a fantasy right. just read exactly. an adventure story. Exactly. Yes. yeah and then the other thing if you're looking for uh both world buildings but i also think like encounters um mm -hmm. 
man, Don Quixote is best. It's so yeah. good for that, that kind of thing. <laughs> like it's a pseudo medieval scenario. It's based on romances, but it's playing with romances. And there's so many great stories in there. Um, it, it's it's a boundless possibility yeah. within Don Quixote for constructing one shots or or interesting scenarios or even just a tavern. What does a tavern look like? Right. Yeah. Don Quixote's got it in spades. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's good stuff. OK, so uh, we're going to move towards our conclusion here. Um, one of the things we, we need to do here, although it's not a usual thing to do with an interview, we're going to do it for you. Um, this is a saga that divides audiences, Will. Some people really like it, but other people really hate it. I want to know for you, Will, what is your final rating for this saga and why? Okay, so obviously since I spent a lot of time on this for my thesis, I have a uh, uh, quite a soft spot for this saga. Uh, however, I am reminded of a... Um, of something that Anthony uh, Oliveira said on Twitter regarding the horror movie, The Nun, um, which is that a movie doesn't have to be good to be great. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I do give a lot of points for concept, for like a really cool high concept. It's like, wow, you really thought of something awesome mm -hmm. there. It kind of fell flat on its face or you stepped on a rake. Um, but, <laughs> but wow, points for just for the for the vision of it. Uh, and I um, I that's how I kind of feel about about Bard Saga. Um, and I do think that, like, for example, the writer sees the quest through better than the adventures in Flo Amana Saga. Uh, there's so much in we've seen other texts that are are far um, less cohesive uh, right. than this. Um, but all of that, again, waffling aside, I think that I would, uh, in order to be fair to other sagas that I also absolutely love that do have a tighter uh, construction, I don't think I could go higher than a 7.5. That's pretty high. Well, you say that's pretty damn high. I mean, you know, that's pretty, I, I didn't expect you to go low given how much time you spent on this, but I agree. Uh, that is, that is a, uh, I think that's a, that's a, Fair if generous score. It's it's a seven point five is like it's it's like looking it's Nyal Saga is within reach at a seven point five. It's like <laughs> yeah, hey, yeah, hey Nyal Saga, I'll see you soon. <laughs> I think though that like so uh, another thing that that um I think is interesting about this saga that we didn't really touch on earlier, but maybe indicates more intentionality is how consistent this author is with just getting around using famous names. Oh, <laughs> so like it's not. Ragnar, it's Ragnar. Yeah. Like, and it's like, why are you bothering to bend over backwards? Right. Right. Especially yes. when it's after his time period, but you're dealing with an undead. So why can't it be Ragnar? Right. It could be whoever right. you want. Gonna, he doesn't get less dead over time. Right. <laughs> and especially that, like, like the the ship is Slothen, which is the second longest after Slothen. <laughs> it's just like you're doing it again. Uh -huh. <laughs> We're like. You have this, you're clearly modeling it after something famous, but you're really going out of your way to just not use that name, but use something that sounds incredibly similar. And I don't know why you know, this person is doing that, but it makes me think there may be more intentionality and design behind it. There's a, a big wink behind all of those. Yeah. Right. right. I, I think, once again, I think that is a, a, a generous interpretation that will allow you to have it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Will, uh, a final question that we always ask, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make this a little bit more difficult for you. Do you have a favorite saga? And I'm taking Barth off the table to save right. you from the struggle of whether or not to pick it. We're taking that one off the table. 
do you have a favorite saga? Well, I can say uh, with confidence that Bard Saga would not be my favorite pick of all regard. <laughs> I didn't want you to feel like you had to hold up the side or anything. I am a big fan of um, anything that involves the theme of mortal men doomed to die. Uh, so I like the ones that involve like really uh, tragic arcs and bleak outcomes. So Gisla Saga, I think, is is just like um, such a perfect one. But Ale Saga mm -hmm. is also uh, so mm -hmm. great and gets far more magic. Uh, not that there isn't magic in Gisla Saga, sure. But uh, and then there's just also the, the wildness of Ale himself. But I think in the end, I probably have to go with Volsunga Saga, even though mm -hmm. it ends up like kind of petering out to a very unfulfilling folkloric uh, end at the very conclusion of the saga, the early parts of it. Um, and my favorite part of Volsunga Saga is uh, Signy, uh, when she uh, is, when they're finally uh, have defeated the evil king Sigir and uh, her brother Sigmund says, now come out and join us as the hall is burning behind her. And she's <laughs> like, you thought this was going to end well for any of us? Yeah. And she turns around and walks back into the fire yeah. and it's so enigmatic and I read it as so, I mean, like, obviously she's choosing to die and this is she's making this choice not completely of her own free will because of various cultural factors and so like there's a very complicated um gendered moment there but rather than reading her as oppressed i see her as making an active um decision and taking command mm -hmm. the whole saga is about everyone is doomed to die and she chooses the way in which she will do that yeah, um right. and so i think that that moment is probably one that makes Sunga Saga my favorite. Plus, a lot of Odin. Yes, he's he's all <laughs> over that one. Yeah, I, gotta have a gotta have a little Odin in there. Yeah, great. That's a good choice. I I, I don't I don't blame you for that one. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Will, once again thank for you. joining us for this fascinating conversation. Uh, it was really really great. Uh, we could go on talking for a good while longer, as I'm sure everyone can see or hear. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll save it for another time. Well, I think we'll have you back, Will. You're, you're, you're good for this. I would be hinted at a couple of other sagas you might be willing to come on and talk about. So yeah, but you just brought up Skofnung and the swords in Laxdala saga. And I happen to have just yeah. submitted an article for that. So when you make Excellent. it to Laxdala saga, Excellent. I, I we'll, we'll have you back for that. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but it's published expert William Beale. Yeah, uh, it is interesting the Bard Saga. I feel like we talked about a lot of things that Bard Saga led us to, but like Bard Saga, like it's kind of a the loose string that you start pulling at and it leads you to all other places of the saga <laughs> world, even if you're not still strictly speaking about Bard Saga itself. But it's one reason why it's so enigmatic. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things I've enjoyed about this um, is is we've got to talk about certain things about saga writing and the culture of saga writing that we haven't really gotten to address um, more as directly as we did tonight. So that that's fantastic. Um, all right. So for now, listeners, my dear, dear listeners, <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us and let us know your thoughts on this uh, discussion uh, or on Barth Saga in general, well, uh, you can you can do that. Do you know how? How? Well, you can get in touch with us uh, via email uh, at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com or through our various social media accounts where we are sagathingpod on Twitter or sagathingpodcast on Facebook and Instagram. Or you can write the first half of a letter to us, leave it around for a century or two and hope somebody else comes along to write the second half that's better than the part you wrote. And mm -hmm. then I guess mail it to our grandchildren. And they'll they'll address it. Okay, all right. If that's how you want it, but that's I'm assuming that we've just condemned our 
our future generations to continue this project after we are gone, Andy. I'll make sure my children listen to this episode so that they can prepare their children. Right. Right. And, tell and the few, tell the younglings. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll do it for us. Uh, our thanks to Will. Uh, Will, if, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, where, where might they find you? Right. So you can email me at William.Beal. That's B as in boy, I E L at UConn, uh, U-C-O-N-N dot E-D-U. Um, and I am on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Tolkienalia. Uh, so that's Tolkien's name uh, with A-L-I-A added to the end of it. How did Excellent. you get Tolkienalia? Um, it was late one night when I was in my uh, apartment in Iceland and I was trying to come up with something and that was on my, uh, the Tolkien was on my desk and so that's how it, it, it happened. I have, no, I'm just amazed that you got it. I'm amazed that oh, wasn't already taken. Yeah. I think that it's a weird enough form of the name that, uh, yeah, it slipped by. I suppose. Yeah. But now, now you have it and you have to live with it. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> and live I, up I, to I it. Recognize the price of that choice several times. <laughs> That's great. Well, all right. Well, thanks again, Will, for joining us. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll be back soon. Bye for now. Oh, love,